City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. Environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, we could hardly hear the intro through the noise then. But anyway, <laughs> um, the, uh, just speaking of the noise, look, let's have this first up. I'm going to pour it. There we are. That's the noise people love to hear, the pouring of the tea. And I've got Paddy Dobson doing the panelling today. Paddy, you want a cup of green tea? Look, in fact, look, I know it's St Patrick's Day, Paddy, but really, green beer this time of morning is that's, it's disgraceful. <laughs> no, seriously, it isn't good for you. Look, wait till later in the day. I'll give you a green tea instead. Look, throw that away. Go, put it back in, <laughs> thanks, put, Gavin. Put it back in the fridge. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much now, for Can that. you reach up there and get up there? Oh, I will over the two uh, aspects. Yeah, there you are. Okay. And we've got Meg Kimber on the line. Well, I'm Kevin Healy, by the way. We've got Meg Kimber on the line. It's our housing day. We're going to be talking in about 20 minutes to Shane McGrath from Housing with the Aged Action Group and then later in the program to Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing about lots of things, including, of course, since the last housing day, we've had the report on aged care come in, which I'm sure the Housing with the Aged people will have some, some more than some interest in. Um, Meg, morning. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Patty. Good to join you guys. Good morning. Yes, and I'm glad you weren't here to watch that green beer in this time of morning thing. But I know it would have oh abra- God, would have abraded your sensitivities, Meg. But oh, I'm just having a little thing. Look, speaking of your sensitivities, one thing I did want to raise with you: uh, this um, this half fair thing that the government's throwing around to go to tourist destinations. One yeah. of the places that was named over the weekend was Bernie in Tasmania, and a, a very conservative columnist, I don't know why he came out with it, because it was against his principles, I would have thought, but he, <laughs> he agreed with, the, that it, with everybody that the government has chosen marginal liberal seats for all these destinations and suggests yeah. that Bernie is, because it's in, I think it's in Braddon, isn't it, which is a marginal seat in Tasmania. Yeah. Um, but he said, why would they pick Bernie? Because no one would want to go near Bernie as a tourist <laughs> destination. Now, as a Tasmanian yourself, Meg, um, do you want to defend your state or agree with him? I have some very important rebuttals to this crazy argument um, that's been put that Bernie is not a tourist destination. Bernie is one of the nicest places. The northwest of um, Tasmania is incredible. So I don't know what they say. Yes, admittedly, those seats in Tasmania flip every election and Liberals won the last one, so they're probably terrified that it'll flip back to Labor, but um, Bernie is just a really, really sweet and lovely town and the northwest of Tasmania is incredible. Some of the freshest air in the whole world, they say. Right, so that that was a defence, I take it. Uh, <laughs> it was. <laughs> rather than an agreement. <laughs> Radio. Yeah. Now, I, I just, yeah. last night I was going through some, old, some papers, and back in, back in January um, there was a headline in the Financial Review that said Labor wants Lou, that's Solomon Lou, of course, who refuses to pay rent and but gets lots of millions in JobKeeper. Labor wants Lou to repay JobKeeper cash. Well, just in case you're worried, Meg, I want to assure you that, that Solomon has taken that into consideration and he's chosen not to pay it back. You'll be pleased to hear. So, <laughs> yes. Great. Yes, that's yeah. right. Well, it's wonderful. Uh, Solomon and, and Alan Joyce, 
who's the only person in the world who can make me hate an Irish accent, um, and people like um, Jerry Harvey, every time you see them, they're smiling at the camera, but if you listen to what they say, they're always saying something that'll put lots more public money into their pockets. Um, they're good at that. They're very good at it. Solomon's good at it. Just uh, on, a, on a more sombre note, though, um, uh, uh, a, a, an Aboriginal man died in security here at Ravenhall Correctional Centre last week, and he's the third Aboriginal person to die in custody in Australia in the past, in, in a week, in fact, three in a week. Uh, mm. bloke in his mid-30s died at Long Bay, and an Indigenous woman in her mid-50s died at Silverwater Women's Prison in New South Wales. So despite deaths in custody inquiries and everything that went back decades ago, it's still happening, which is um, which is bloody awful. Mm. It is yeah. awful, yeah. We've seen um, the Black Lives Matter movement in America. Um, you know, last year there was that uh, translation of that into increased awareness about Aboriginal deaths in custody in Australia, and yet this keeps happening. So it's it's a... It's a awful indictment of the systems that we have uh, the racist system that we have in Australia yeah it definitely is and um, with the events that have gone on the last week or so of course um, also Aboriginal women are particularly exactly uh, yeah absolutely yeah Yeah. okay Um, also just on again a rather a sombre front um, at Heverdale Creek out at Mitcham um the, well, this, this, this is an interesting item in some ways. The Environment Protection Authority, which doesn't do much protection at all, of course, um, is urging the public to avoid the creek out there at Mitcham because of a hazardous liquid leak which has sent fumes into the air. And uh, that was reported on Sunday. And a brown substance with a turpentine-like smell is in the channel. The substance is giving off fumes. and it, But it said it was no, there was no threat to the public but people should continue to stay informed and monitor conditions. They're urged to avoid the area as emergency services investigate the source. If you are sensitive to chemical fumes or you live with someone who is sensitive to chemical fumes, you should close windows and doors, the alert said. That's after saying there was no threat to the public. Um, I, don't, I can't work that one out. I must Do you know admit. many people who aren't uh, sensitive to <laughs> chemical fumes? <laughs> uh, let me think. Good question. Yeah. yeah. Meg, you can spend the next 20 minutes thinking that one through. I will. I'm just having did a sip of tea Kevin, here. Yep. Uh, Kevin, did you see that um, it's been reported that house prices have jumped the largest national monthly rise uh, in February since um, August 2003? The yeah. house prices jumped 2.1% in February. Yeah, did yeah, that's know? right. That's something we're going to raise with Howard later in the show, obviously. But, yeah, mm. it's... Um, and they're, and they're, it's, it's that awful the old situation where where the very people who say we need affordable housing in our society but they want affordable housing provided of course through the public sector with through the private sector with public funding those very people are the ones who get upset if prices are not going up and so they're getting rubbing their hands and saying isn't it wonderful prices are going up but then of course that does create other problems like the fact that most people can't afford them Um, so yeah yeah, but so they the research that was done on it was um, <clears throat> by a group called Call Logic, and I don't know anything about them, but they looked at the rate change in percentages in each um, state, and the highest was Hobart and Sydney. 
and it, yeah. and I know anecdotally firsthand that um, house prices and rental prices in Hobart are so so chronically unaffordable that people can't find anywhere to rent um, that they can afford on their income. Yeah, yeah. They, they can't even so they can't even afford to rent, let alone buy. Of course, That's, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah. So what do they do? Yeah. Well, yeah, people moving out to Queenstown and, and various other parts of um, Tasmania, but you know, it's not yeah. it's not a high income um, area in in Tasmania. Whereas in Sydney, um, rentals and and house prices are high, but. But incomes are fairly high. Mm. Or move to well. tourist black holes like Bernie, for instance. Hey! <laughs> 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 um. <laughs> I've got to let you know that uh, the Dobson clan is from the north northwest of Tasmania as well, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, on, on that about accommodation, um, one of the places, of course, they've named is Broome. And because the Western Australian government, I think most people are aware of this, but because the Western Australian government is also urging local Western Australians to travel around their own state and go to tourist things, Broome is accommodation in Broome is booked ahead for weeks to come. Um, you can't get a hire car, you can't get a room. And so the federal government's put up this proposal, but anyone who wants to go there won't be able to stay anywhere other than maybe sleep on Cable Beach or something for the night. But, um, so... Uh, it does, it does generate the odd problem. Mm. Now, last yeah. week, Meg, on the show, we talked about the fact that we were talking about um, about um, burying coal in, the, in your, your head in the sand with coal, the, mm. the, yeah, bury the storage one. Um, but uh, we mentioned at that time Chevron on Barren Island, which is a beautiful um, ecological area in, in Western Australia, the Gorgon plant they've built there, uh, which everyone said would totally destroy the ecology of the area. One of their one of their big selling points was they were going to, in fact, use sequestration and bury the CO2, but they've run into lots of problems. We spoke to a geologist at the time, a woman called Ginny Llewellyn, with a lovely Welsh accent, who um, who said to us that it's it's porous and they won't be able to store it there anyway, and they're running into lots of trouble. So there's been lots of hold-ups at Gorgon for all sorts of reasons, um, and yet again they've had to close down another train, as they call them, a third train's been closed down just this week because of problems to do with engineering, etc. But again, the, all these things that they say, well, it's a defect to do with manufacturing the product and not us, but nonetheless. If, if if a product goes wrong in that in that environment, then it's going to start destroying everything, and uh, they're running into all sorts of troubles. But it just it, it's cropped up again, and uh, mm. and you know they they should never have been allowed to build what they built because they also built a town for eight thousand workers on an island that is one of the most pristine ecological areas off West Australia's coast. So it's it's a real disaster. Yeah, it's hard to um, it's hard to fathom really the way that. Um, permissions for these extractive industries get get uh, handed around willy-nilly. Yeah. yeah, they do. And um, it's interesting also that um, that uh, Twitty Forest, Twitty, whatever your name is, um, Twitty, he, he, of course, not only runs Fortescue and has big mining interests, but he also has big pastoral interests on land that, of course, his family stole off the Indigenous people, but he, he does say he's committed to Indigenous people. 
But Twitty reserves the right, as mining companies do, to go onto anyone's land to 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 explore and 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 see what's under the ground there. Um, when, except on his land, and twice he's gone to court in the last twelve months, opposing other mining companies coming onto his pastoral property. And twice on technical grounds, he's won the case. So you've got a bloke who will take his own Fortescue anywhere and throw people off their land and take over, uh, except it's, unless it's his land, of course. And uh, But somehow he's found a loophole in the law that allows him to keep him off his land. Mm, yeah, well, if you have the money, you can find you can put as many people as you want onto the project, can't you, finding a way around things? Oh, you certainly can. aspect of our legal system, yeah. yeah that's right. That's right. Or you hire the, you hire as a minister has this week. Uh, you know, two of the best uh, senior yeah. silks in the country and the best lawyer for that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Without mentioning names, I think we know what we're talking about. But um, yeah. yeah, he's certainly got the the best in legal advice anyway that he can get for uh, mm. for that case, which could be interesting actually. Uh, now, last week also, Meg, your law announced it's going to close by 2028 rather than 2032. I still think 2028 is about seven years too too much, uh, given it's the, the biggest polluter in the country in terms of coal-fired power stations. But interestingly enough, and of course, Angus Taylor, the Minister of Angus Tailings, is screaming and yelling about the fact that we need backup and, you know, apparently... Um, apparently uh, renewables just can't do it, although they seem to be doing it pretty well. But he, he knows, as he's the minister. But there's an interesting aspect to it. Energy Australia, which is you know, one of the bodies that oversees all this stuff, and the state minister um, would not reveal the terms of the safety net deal. Now, for some reason, they've done a safety net deal so that because at the moment coal-fired power is losing money because because of renewables actually, and because uh, you know because it's forcing the price the price of electricity in during the day mostly so low, they're finding it hard to make money, and that's one of the reasons why you won't get any more coal-fired power stations. Not just because renewables are coming on, but because they're no longer profitable anyway, but also. They've done a deal now. We don't know what the deal is, but it's our money, so we should know. Um, they wouldn't reveal the terms of the safety net deal, and industry sources suggested it could involve underwrite underwritten power prices or a last resort investment guarantee to help cover the 200 to 300 million required each year to keep the generator running. One special, one speculated Energy Australia would otherwise have wait, wait, uh, wanted to close the plant sooner. So. It does seem the government's given some sort of guarantees of millions of our money to keep it going if, in fact, it runs into financial difficulty in that time, which is something I think we should be much more aware of and uh, what the details mm. are. Yeah, the rhetoric around these things is always so concerning because so much funding and, and so, so many subsidies go into all of these dirty extractive industries. And then, you know, any time there's something like that's a public service that you would think that, you, that our taxes should really go to, like public housing and like public transport, suddenly it's this horrible, nasty thing if the government ever has to put any money into it. And yet these kind of deals are happening all the time for, mm. for all of these industries. Yeah. Well, we'll be talking about it later in housing, of course, where again, so much of what, you know, the so-called public money goes into the private sector in that area as well. But yeah, yeah, in the t- yeah go on. Sorry. 
Well, just speaking of housing, and I don't know whether this has been touched on, and I'm sure you'll probably bring it up with, um, with our guests later in the show, but I won't be here, so I just wanted to note um, the report from the University of New South Wales and the Australian Council of Social Services. Um, <clears throat> they did this analysis of all of the people who were sleeping rough who were given emergency accommodation during the pandemic, which I think is a really interesting uh, part of, of this situation because it just goes to show that people who are sleeping rough can uh, can be moved into secure uh, you know accommodation uh, because it's possible to do because it was done and then how many of them were actually moved from that into uh, long-term housing that the estimate is about a third so only a third and apparently 40,000 people around Australia were um, were, were given accommodation during that time. So Yeah, and the federal government saying it can be done because it puts lots and lots of refugees into uh, into hotels, yeah. except they can't yeah. get out at all, of course. They, they're locked in, no. um, they're locked up. But again, they, they spend a fortune on hotels just to accommodate <laughs> refugees who should be in the, out in the community anyway and, uh, and should be, in fact... Yeah should be, in fact, living openly in our community with all the rights of everyone else. But anyway, and then, by the, by the yeah. way, that on that, of course, there's a rally at, this morning started at 9 o'clock and um, your Bricky show, Paddy, um, talked about it. Uh, That's right. About um, Breen, what's his first name? Again? Uh, Chris Breen. Chris Breen, who's, who was arrested, you know, we know, last year when he, the car, the car, um, rally they had where they, they kept distance but he's been, of course been charged with inciting etc which is a trumped up charge but that quote, that goes to court this morning and there's a rally right now in fact at the county court about that issue so yeah and uh, well, let's hope let's hope he uh, he gets off the off the thing anyway but as, as I think the interview said this morning uh, if he doesn't we're all in trouble oh yeah exactly <laughs> yeah just to back on that that energy thing with Taylor, by the way, it's interesting that Taylor, on the one hand, gets stuck into you know renewables can't do it, etc. Uh, but when he's confronted by international bodies and asked about Australia meeting its requirements, he says, "We have the largest uptake in the world of of people putting solar on their roofs." Now he's taking <laughs> he's taking that as something the government, you know, it's a wonderful thing for the government yeah. when the government is effectively opposed it right through. But, uh, <laughs> Anyway, he, uh, to him, it's a great thing, apparently, except it's not good enough to uh, to stop having coal and gas as our major source. So that's good news, isn't it? Just, just this week with the um, issue around women, um, and Meg, I'm glad you've come on for this first 20 minutes or so, because otherwise on this week when women have been in the news so much, we would have had four blokes on the program today. But... Um, <laughs> But no, ne- next week, next week I'm having a rotating week off, so in fact there'll be it'll be all women next week, so that'll make up for it, it I guess. Will be. Yeah. Um, which is good. But a woman called Annette Kimmett is the chief executive at Minter Ellison, one of the big law companies in this country, and um, there's been a real furor there. She, she's not actually a lawyer; she was appointed as CEO for other, you know, for reasons in administration, for, for ability administration. But one of their partners, one of their most senior partners, a bloke called Peter Bartlett. Uh, uh, took on, took on um, Christian Porter as a client, um, following the events of the last few weeks, and she sent out a an email to staff. I don't know if people are caught up with this. I'm sure most people have, but she sent out an email to staff, saying that um, she was she was hurt by the fact 
and the acceptance of the matter did not go through the firm's due consultation or approval processes. Had it done so, we would have considered the matter through the lens of our purposes and values, etc. And for that, she's been given the flick effectively, and she's currently wow. at home. Uh, and they've they've turned against her. So, uh, and you know, she she argued that they should have at least considered whether they would take it on or not. And her uh, her point of view obviously came from a woman's perspective on the issue. Well, the first the first thing I think about that is that she should really join her union if she hasn't already, because that doesn't seem fair. To no. be well, for that. well, they're negotiating. They're negotiating the terms. I mean, there, there's some suggestion that she should get a few million because there's, she's on a five year contract of which there's three to go. Uh, and there's other partners in the company saying she should get nothing because she's broken, and et cetera, et cetera, the, the, the legal reasons why she shouldn't get anything. So inside the company now, the lawyers themselves are fighting over how much she should get or whether she could, could get anything uh, as, a, as a redundancy. But um, it's just another issue to do with women that's blown up admittedly at the top level. And I think, you know, there were, there were the Herald Sun last week had articles on International Women's Day about we need more women in, on company boards and as bosses. And I always argue that whether it's a bloke or a woman, if you're a boss, you're a boss and you're going to exploit workers and mm. it doesn't really matter. I think, you know, international... Well, women... In IWD, in fact, was International Working Women's Day and it should stay as that. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, capitalism has all kinds of ways to um, maintain uh, power structures that are not in favour for not that don't benefit women. So you know, it is really tough. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We better get to Shane, but just just one other item I think worth mentioning because it was another thing that was privatised. The Commonwealth Bank that was privatised years ago is currently in negotiations about uh, with the union. But it's, it's decided it's going to bypass the union. It wants to go straight to a ballot of its employees because it says that the the union um, is is failing to to wake up to modern work practices, which I presume means it's to cut wages and conditions at a great rate. Um, mm. So he says that common the common the chief executive says that. Um, uh, we, 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 after a year of intense bargaining, we see an attempt to simplify conditions and ensure the agreement suits modern work practices and the union won't be a part of that. Uh, so again, modern work practices mean that you then bypass the union, you go straight to your employees and, and slash things like RDAs and terms and wages and conditions and hopefully yeah. it, they won't get round to that or if they do, the employees will be smart enough not to vote for it anyway, but it's just that there's another yeah. privatised thing. I suppose the other privatised one worth mentioning, and we might talk more about this in future, is because they're going to make a lot of money out of it, I guess, is the Commonwealth Serum Laboratory here in Australia which um, is going to be producing this this vaccination for the um, this serum for the for the um, for COVID, it of course is called Commonwealth because it was Commonwealth and was a government of, of I can't remember whether it was late in the Hawke Keating period or early in the Howard period, but whatever. One in that period, it was privatised by the federal government, and uh, it's now it's now of course coming back getting getting public funding for uh, all sorts of things. But nonetheless, again, it's another company that's going to make fortunes which could have been in public hands and should have been in public hands. But there you are. All right, Meg, well, now you've got to go off, haven't you? 
Yeah, and I better let you guys get on and get on to our next guest, Shane McGrath. Right, so you've got to go off and do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay or something. <laughs> and, um, <Nah>. Whatever. <laughs> and I'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, but, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, all right, thanks, Meg, for your time this morning. Okay, and we're going to take a quick break, going to get Shane McGrath on the line, and we're going to talk about, well, presumably the aged care and inquiry and lots of things. Goes away, Paddy. You want to make an announcement? What it was? Ah, uh, that was uh, that's how it is by Otis Clay. Ah, that's how it was. <laughs> <laughs> right here, and uh, on the line we have uh, definitely not a was. He's an is. Um, Shane McGrath from the Housing with the Age Action Group. Um, on a good day, I'm still an is. <laughs> <laughs> good to hear, Paddy. Because um, not Paddy, good to hear Shane. Because uh, if you were a was, you wouldn't be talking to us. Um, Paddy, um, Shane, anything you wanted to talk about? I don't want, do want to raise with you the the recent report of the Age care inquiry, but um, did you have anything special you wanted to talk about from the Housing for the Aged Action Group? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a few things going on that we're you know, interested in or concerned about. The um, We've been focused on the Retirement Villages Act review for, for quite a while now that the Victorian government started, I think started back in 2019, maybe even 2018, um, got put on hold pretty hard when uh, the government kind of understandably had other priorities last year um, in, in the consumer affairs space. They, you know, rushed to, rushed through some emergency rental laws that were, were largely beneficial and, and positive. Um, now they've come back, they've finally released a, an options paper, which is the, the options they're considering for reform of retirement villages. Um, retirement villages kind of get, you know, short shrift a lot of the time in discussions about housing. We're often focused on you know, more, more mainstream sort of housing options, including things like public and social housing. 
But, uh, you know, retirement villages are a, a massive industry. Uh, people might think of them as, as an exclusive concern of relatively wealthy older people. Uh, but not all retirement villages are run for profit. There's quite a, a large not-for-profit retirement village sector. So the, the review is a, a really important one for us. We've been dissatisfied with the Act for a long time. The options paper uh, was released on Monday. I haven't had a chance to, to finish reading it completely yet. But I have to say my first impression is not good. Uh, it's really missing out on some of the key concerns that we've had or, or seems to be. In particular, there's nothing that seems to improve security of tenure, which we consider to be a, an absolute priority. And the, the situation for security of tenure in retirement villages often is that, like, they, they, they don't generally evict people. Like, your security is, is pretty good because that's, like, the vibe that they want to convey, that you can live there for life. But there's not real protections of that security of tenure. So when a, a relationship goes bad, when a manager decides they dislike a resident, um, or, you know, there's an issue about there's something that comes up in the village. There's, there's not the sort of protection of security of tenure that we would like to see. Um, if we don't get better protections through this review of the Act, then, you know, residential tenants are going to have better protections than retirement village residents a lot of the time. And, and you would think that the priority would be to protect uh, older people in retirement villages who, who may need the extra protection. And there's also, of course, been a lot in the news, and we talked about it on this program, about the rip-offs they do with extra fees and all sorts of things they, they add on, which end up costing people lots. And if you want to get out, you suddenly find you owe them lots of money or whatever. Um, yeah. is, that, is that addressed uh, in it at all? Well, I mean, it is addressed. It's, it's probably not addressed in the way that we'd like it to be. We, we think we have, like I would say, we probably have a pretty fundamental, like, I don't even want to say disagreement. I just want to say, like, we just don't... Like, like our perspectives are sliding past each other. The consumer affairs think that the problem about, uh, about exploitative fees is disclosure, about making sure residents have enough information up front about what the fees are. So you know you're being ripped off. Yeah. The idea that if they have enough information, it's OK for them to be ripped off later. <laughs> yeah, right. We want to say... They shouldn't be ripped off. Like, it shouldn't be necessary to disclose an you know, a, a, a overwhelming amount of information. Well, there should actually be protections against hyper-exploitative business practices. Uh, residents should be a- actually adequately protected in the first place. Um, I mean, uh, so mm. just to, to, like, continue my rant a bit, I mean, we've talked a bit on this show before, I think, about one of Hag's priorities is what we sometimes call the missing middle. So, just for those Hagers housing with H Action Group, by the way, just to let people. Oh yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's right. No, yeah. keep saying <laughs> it now. Just full, yeah. I'm in full flight now. You've got to stop me if I know Okay, so, get get back to flying. So we think about like if you retire with you know like let's say two hundred grand or something, then you can move into a retirement village. There's problems about that. It's probably quite exploitative, but we kind of know where you're supposed to go. If you retire with, with a very small amount of money, um, let's say you know less than less than ten grand up to maybe thirty grand, we also have an idea of where you should go, and that's public and social housing that's designed for people in your circumstance. Obviously, there's problems there as well. The main problem is supply, but we kind of have a sense of what, what what's available, like how how to get you into that sort of housing, things like that. If you retire anywhere in the middle, if you retire with more than thirty grand but less than two hundred grand, we just have no good options for people in that category. Uh, this does tend to disproportionately affect women for the same reason that women are disproportionately 
you know, older women are disproportionately affected by homelessness and the risk of homelessness. You know, things to do with, uh, you know, superannuation balances and, and lifetime earnings and the gender's wage gap and things like that. But, you know, we see that there's scope for retirement villages to serve these people much better. The problem is that when the industry thinks about innovating, what they mean is figuring out new ways to extract wealth from the wealthiest retirees or from the, you know, the, from retirees who have more than 200 grand when they retire. Mm. If, we, if we limit their ability to hyper-exploit uh, vulnerable old people, then they're going to have to look for other, other sources of income and it will involve actually providing services that people would want and need, uh, including housing. And we think there could be scope for retirement villages to, to play a much more, much better and broader role in the, the housing system overall. Uh, so that was yeah. quite, quite a long yeah. way around to answer your question. No, no, but also when we, if we, if we come to the aged care inquiry, obviously the, the people who provide the aged care homes, they're desperately crying out for more and more public money for their profits. But to what degree is their public money going into these places? To retirement villages yeah. or to, to aged care? To retirement I mean, villages. Is there, yeah, so is, is there I, much? I mean, well, so for-profit retirement villages aren't, aren't government-funded. Uh, some of the not-for-profit providers certainly get grants and things like that. They're, some of them are run by, you know, quite large not-for-profit organisations that everyone would know, you know, the Salvos, uh, Symphonies, places like that. Others are very small. You know, it's not uncommon for a, a local church to have, you know, three units out the back that, that are for vulnerable people that are run as a retirement village or something like that. Um, so there, there's probably some level of funding going to different organisations in different ways. Um, but it, it's not a, a sort of formally government-funded sector. Mm. I mean, in, in particular, the not-for-profit sector, you know, was essentially established um, from about the 50s through the 80s by the... I can't remember the name of the scheme, but it developed independent living units. There was funding specifically to provide housing for for older people on low income, for retirees on lower income. Um, and, and that's a big problem that we see across the sector now because that funding is no longer available. So, you know, small not-for-profit organisations have to manage this housing stock, have to keep it affordable for people, which often means, you know, not, not charging market rates, not necessarily covering their costs and try and maintain the stock, which, you know, is ageing, which can be quite expensive. Uh, so we're seeing more and more of the, the old not-for-profit stock closing down or, or switching to other uses. Yeah. We, also, we've talked before about many older people live permanently in caravan parks. Um, do they come under this, this inquiry or are they a separate thing? No, caravan parks and residential parks fall under the uh, Residential Tenancies Act, so, so that's a separate thing. I, I mean, we see this as part of the problem, the segmentation, the kind of atomization, if you like, of retirement housing, of older people's housing into, into you know, little little separate systems and, and fiefdoms of different sources of profit and things like that. Um, one of the recommendations that came out of the uh, Senate inquiry, sorry, the, the Victorian government inquiry into retirement housing a few years ago, was that there should be an ombudsman for retirement housing disputes because the existing forms of dispute resolution, you know, VCAT or, or different courts or things like that, weren't adequate. And the government, you know, got that into the Retirement Villages Act reform uh, options paper. And, you know, we consider that a win to an extent that there's a, they're even talking about an ombudsman. 
but we've said again and again, no, not not for retirement, not narrowly for retirement villages. We want this systematically for for older people for retirement housing. But because these are divided up across different acts, it's hard to get the government to address them in a in a systematic and sort of wide-reaching mm. way. Is there also a need? You mentioned public housing for the public sector to set up its own residential places like this um, for so you put up a residential village that is totally funded and run by the by the public purse i mean i i believe that nationalization is the only real solution to these these problems that we're talking about uh, you know exploitation in the retirement village sector isn't going to go away the inadequacies of the services and facilities that are provided by that sector isn't going to go away um you know retirement villages the entire retirement housing sector should be seized and run as public housing 100 percent Mm. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. Well, that's, that's the answer to the question, isn't it? <laughs> I think that was a yes. <laughs> you could have just said yes, really, but um, <laughs> that's that. Look, aged care, um, the recent aged care inquiry, that doesn't particularly affect Housing for the Aged Action Group directly, does it? Because, you know, it's it's a different sector in some ways, talking about sectors. But yeah, so we I mean, we're, we don't really deal with residential people who require residential aged care, yeah. but different sorts of aged care services are really important to, to allow people to age in place, including, you know, in their own homes, in public housing, in retirement villages, um, all, across the, the sec- all across those sectors. Yeah. There was also, um, also recently, there was an article in... Um, you know, I think it was the Herald Sun of all places where it, sort of where it would be anyway, where landlords were complaining about the fact that these new tenancy rights laws that have come in are taking away their rights as landlords and owners of property that you know people can have a pet without having to ask them how terrible uh, and also you know all those other things that now give tenants a, a few more rights, but the landlords are complaining you must have been pretty distressed by that, I would have thought Shay. Yeah, look, I'm just trying to compose myself. Uh, you really give me a the, um, the the plight of the poor landlords faced with um, new rental laws at the end of this month is uh, is quite overwhelming. The um, I mean, there are some some big changes coming at the end of March, which is when the the emergency COVID rental laws will end and when the the residential tenancies reforms that were sort of postponed due to COVID will come into effect. One of the big ones that HAG has lobbied for for a long time and is excited about is the minimum standards for rental properties. And, you know, I mean, that is more serious for, for property owners, something like being allowed to have pets, which absolutely yeah. everyone should be able to do and, and really has been because you just lie to your real estate agent, I guess. Right. Um, but, again, not, not the official HAG position. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, prior to now, there's never been any requir- any minimum requirements for a residential property. Um, I remember having some clients come into the office one day, you know, a long time ago, um, who'd rented out a property without viewing it first. Obviously, it's always a mistake. When they got there, they found out that there was no back door. There was just a cardboard box type taped to one side of the door frame. Um, <laughs> so the minimum standards will mean that you don't, you, you actually get a back door. You get, uh, you know, you get <laughs> cooking and, and bars and bathing facilities, things like that. Um, Probably the most substantial is that there'll be requirements. There's a heater uh, in the main living area, and there's a kind of phased introduction that will require those heaters over time to be of a higher standard of better energy efficiency and things like that. Um, the the thing that we would have liked to see with the the heating that we haven't got is uh, a cooling standard. Um, obviously, for older people in particular, cooling is just as important as heating, and the, mm. the effects of, of heat waves can be really serious. 
Uh, and the other one is insulation. And, you know, requiring someone to put in a heater if there's no insulation to actually trap that heat is, is just an invitation to, you know, run up a massive energy bill anyway. Uh, but unfortunately, the government is still in absolute terror of the word insulation. That's, uh, you know, scandal. And so that's that's something that we're still going to be lobbying for and pushing for. Yeah, I mean... We, we again we've talked a few times about the fact that usually the, the heaters in these places are the most expensive to run. Are you saying now that they're going to be forced to be much more efficient? Yeah, so I don't have the details in front of me, but there's a kind of phased introduction of progressively higher standards for the energy efficiency of the heater. So I think that when it first comes in, there's just a requirement that there is a heater in the main living space. And then after a couple of years, it'll be that there's a, a heater of a certain star rating in the main energy space, sorry, main living space, uh, and, and so on. So the idea being that eventually those standards will make it more, you know, more reasonable for a landlord to install a split system. There is a kind of, you know, quasi backdooring in of the, the cooling standard. Um, but, but yeah, there, there is uh, progress and hope involved in those uh, those. Standards. Yeah, all right, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Uh, anything else you want to say? Because we've got to move on to Howard. But, um... Yeah, no, I, I did have some other things I wanted to talk about, but we're really about out of time. Um, if people, so can I just say, if people are interested in having some input into the uh, Retirement Villages Act review options paper, um, we'll be seeking views from our members and, and other members of the public who have a strong opinion. Um, so get in touch with us. Can I, can I give you our phone number? Certainly can. Yeah, give us a call. It's nine six five four seven three eight nine, and we'll probably talk okay. some more about that on on our show uh, next Wednesday. Okay, nine six five four seven three eight nine. That's it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you're welcome to stay on the line, by the way, if you want to hang around. Hang around, but um, uh, I think yeah. I, I better get back to work. You're going to piss us off, are you? Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, we can take a hint. <laughs> okay, Shane. Thanks very much for your time today. We'll talk to you again next month. Thanks okay. very much. Bye. Thanks a lot. Shane McGrath there from the Housing Village Action Group. And again, we'll take a slight break and come back and um, get Howard Morosi on the line from Friends of Public Housing. This is a public service announcement with guitar.
Okay, another fade out. And Paddy, uh, what was that one? That was uh, Know Your Rights by The Clash. <laughs> right. Okay, and um, I think uh, Howard Morosi knows about the rights of people, or should be the rights of people for housing, but they're not getting it. Uh, Howard, um, welcome again to City Limits, and um, what do you got for us today? Oh, thanks, uh, Kevin. Thanks. Uh, I'm really happy to hear your voice again <laughs> after uh, it's been well, about three or four months, hasn't it? It has been a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway, good to hear you back. Um, look, I'll kick off with uh, just a little bit about the private ownership. Um, so there's currently a uh, the impression that people would be getting is that house prices are, are booming. Um, so I'm, they may be, but it's still very early days. And the latest article I saw was actually that uh, Melbourne and Sydney have gone up around two and two and a half percent in the last quarter, and that means that it's about ten percent a year if you take it over the whole year. That's not booming; that's just returning to normal, mm. as far as I'm concerned. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, some of the articles are contradictory. I've read a couple of them where they talk about house prices booming, then somewhere in the article it says, well, now they're they're back to where they were at some point before COVID. But, you know, you're right. It's it's an adjustment almost. Yeah, it's like the fact is that the prices didn't fall anywhere near as much as uh, the experts were predicting during COVID either. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but it was like, I don't know, maybe five... 10% 10% whereas they're expecting like a one third fall um, so firstly they're wrong and secondly that indicates that uh, there's a lot more um, you know, strength in the, the market than what they, they thought so the fact that it's gone back to what it was before is not a surprise at all um, and uh, you know we're, we're still left with the same problem actually the other thing is the rise has been in mainly houses and not in units. There's been falls in the price of units in the last quarter. So it's misleading to talk about that. And the other, I guess you could conclude that people are now showing a clear preference for houses over units. That's the other thing to uh, conclude from. from well, in fact, there was, anyway, a, said, yeah, there was a report in the last week or so that, the, that because of all the factors involved, a, a population not growing, um, we're not bringing in students, we've got no, no migration taking place, um, that apartments, uh, apartment owners were forced to drop their rents by as much as 34%, uh, which is an amazing drop, um, because... Well, because of the factors you're talking about, I suppose people are, people just are preferring houses, and and there's a you know there's there's less people searching for it. Yep, yep. Um, anyway, well, I think we should get on with uh, with the other uh, public housing reporting. So there's yep. a bit to go through. Um, so North Melbourne Public Housing Estate. Uh, there was an article, and I think there's a new. Uh, Newspaper, uh, local newspaper in um, the inner city called the North. Well, this one's called the Northwest City News, and there's equivalent ones for Doglands, etc. Um, first edition in February uh, had a, a long article about the North Melbourne public housing estate. Um, so the government's now proposing to build a school there, uh, in addition to the uh, non-public housing they're going to uh, rebuild. Um, so the public housing estate's now been demolished, uh, but the uh, construction has been delayed by asbestos in the soil. Um, just to give you an idea, previously there were 112 public housing units 
mainly two to four bedrooms, uh, and the replacement will be by public-private partnership with the MAB and Housing First, the um, Housing Association. So in replacement of the 112 public housing units is going to be a minimum 133 social housing um, and 170 private units. Uh, as we know, because it's managed by Housing First, it can't, it can't be regarded as public housing at all. Um, and the other thing is going to be less rooms in, in that social housing than there were in the uh, public housing um, because the... Um, you know, there'll be mainly one to two bedrooms instead of two to four bedrooms. Um, so uh, the local residents say they haven't been engaged in the process regarding the new primary school. Um, so, yeah, that, that's still... I'm not quite clear exactly how much of the land's going to be given over the, the primary school. There is actually a primary school at the moment nearby, Um so uh, I guess there'll be two campuses there. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're, they're going to just sell off the other one and make this the sole campus or have two. Anyway, uh, thanks to Catherine Murdoch for sending me the article. Uh, and uh, she's just moved from a boarding house to her uh, new public housing unit, which she loves. So good on you, Catherine. Good, good. In fact, speaking of that particular block um, on the, those inner urban blocks um, with the lockdown last year, uh, you probably noticed in a couple of months now, but the Victorian Ombudsman, um, Deborah Glass, uh, earlier this year found that the lockdown was contrary to law and people are talking about taking legal action. Do you know much about that? No, I haven't looked into that. I'll, I'll try to look into that for next time. Um, but, yeah, look, the, the lockdown... Uh, I wondered whether that was, you know, necessary or not from a medical point of view, but the way it was done was just terrible. Mm. People were without, without food for a couple of days. It's just not on. Um, and, uh, you know, over-policing as well. You know, there were too many police there, whereas perhaps there should have been some, but just not that many. Um, anyway, we'll try to come back to that later. Yeah. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the work done by public housing tenants Cameron and Al from the North Melbourne Public Housing Estate. Uh, as I said, the, the whole estate's been demolished and the people have all been dispersed, but Cameron and Al were two tenants in that estate who formed their own tenants group. And they put a lot of work into getting good legal advice from Molly Williams from the um, IMCL, the Inner Melbourne Community Legal Centre. Um, and Cameron and Al, in association with Molly, ensured that they and their fellow tenants were put into public housing um, because, of course, you know, that may not have happened. Uh, they did a lot of work with the Public Housing Defence Network and uh, Cameron showed me his flat and uh, actually proved to me that, um, well, his opinion was that, from, from his experience in the building trade, but also from living there, uh, was that the cracks were just too big in a lot of the flats and really only three out of about 13 blocks on the North Melbourne housing estate could have been retained. Um, uh, so that's that one. Uh, the, um, well, from our, from our point of view, of course, the important thing there would be though that the replacement should all be public housing rather than what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but, but the important thing to note that within the case of North Melbourne, there was a case for demolition, whereas that mm. wasn't the case with other estates like yeah. Walker Street in Northcote. Um, 
the local residents in North Melbourne uh, are pointing out that uh, there doesn't seem to be enough protection from the asbestos work. Um, some of the footpaths haven't been closed off properly. There's kids walking past. Uh, there's piles of rubble left on the estate. Um, and, uh, yeah, just not enough protection from, from the works. Um, now, to move on, uh, another Public Housing Tenant, Act, tenant Activist has complained to the Ombudsman um, and the uh, Victorian Information Commissioner about the survey of public uh, tenants uh, that was done by the department. They feel that their privacy has been breached. Um, a number of names and phone numbers were handed over to a market research consultancy without the permission of those tenants. Mm. Uh, the nature of the questions... Um, disturb them, for example, what their current mental health and financial situation was. They were asked whether they could raise $2,000 in an emergency. Um, and uh, apparently there's only one question that related to maintenance. Um, so we'll come back to that. Uh, there's also Why were they passed on to a private uh, company, though? Was it? Yeah, well, it's the old PPP, isn't it? Like the government... So the private company was going to diagnose or analyse the whole thing or something, was it, or what? Yeah, well, I don't know what they thought they were going to find. I mean, we all already know what the problems are with with public housing anyway. Um, so anyway, that's that's something that's ongoing. Uh, the um, There is currently a petition to stop the eviction of Louise Good, mm. uh, who lives in actually uh, uh, a housing association property uh owned by the uh, CEHL, uh, I think it's Common Equity Housing Limited. And uh, I had a discussion with Louise a few years ago and um, she told me that um, CEHL had been given uh, public housing and promised to set up um, a proper cooperative, a co-op with the tenants and then they just Know, transformed into a normal housing association. Yeah. So, I mean, just a background: that the community housing groups were set up as public housing um, groups, were, were, which were quite good, but they've been handed over to this private company, effectively, and um, the, it's the private company that's 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 um, throwing her out, is evicting her. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So, my understanding was that it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Louise actually won the right to get um, that housing association. Uh, considered a um, under the uh, human rights legislation because they were resisting. They claimed they didn't have to provide it with her human rights. Uh, so she won that case, but they're still trying to evict her. Anyway, there's a petition going for that. Um, another big issue. Just where do people in, where do people yep. find that that petition? Uh, well, I would. I'm not sure. If you, I, I guess you could Google it. Google, Google Louise Good. Um, or I hope we could probably put it up on the on the uh, Facebook page of uh, City Limits as well. Um, or it's actually it's on it's on Friends of Public Housing's Facebook page. You'll find it there. Um, there's also uh, an issue about recycling in public in the public housing towers. People might have seen the um, articles in the Age recently. Uh, Fitzroy public housing tenants. Um, actually started a campaign demanding proper recycling um, because they only have one uh, recycling bin for the whole estate in Fitzroy and Collingwood, North Richmond and Carlton high-rises apparently. 
Um, so that was started off by the Greens councillor, Anab Mahmood, who I think lives in public housing, Deputy Mayor, uh, Councillor Claudia Nguyen, uh, and also Steve Jolly. Right. Okay. Look, unfortunately, we're running out of time, Howard, because we have to get out of the studio earlier these days because of the COVID restrictions and cleaning up after us and all that sort of stuff. Apparently, we're very messy. Um, so we're going to have to wind up here, but um, look, we'll try and get more time next month and take that into account. Um, but anything you want to finally come anything critical you need to say finally? Uh, yes. Well, the other thing was the homelessness report from the Legislative Council. Um, that was a big one. As well. Oh, there's two other things, I guess. There's that and also the Greens bill, which they put forward. Um, so, I, I mean, have I got any time at all? I mean, I can, I can say a few words about each of those. No, look, let's let's wait till next month because we, we, we are running up against the clock. Yeah, yeah. Yep, okay. Okay, but thanks for your time, Howard, and we'll, we will try and do more next month. Okay, thanks a lot. Okay. Right, yeah, thank Bye. Okay, Howard Morosi there. We've got to go and... Um, I'll just pack up all my stuff here and um, and in fact, Paddy, thanks for your time this morning and um, I know you're going to make straight for the fridge and grab that glass of that, that pint. Beer. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, thanks for having me on, Kevin. It was a very enlightening show. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Paddy, for doing it because otherwise we wouldn't have even got to air. But uh, next week it's going to be an all. It's going to be Karina and Meg and um, Zeb. So um, that's uh, that's the fourth Wednesday. Okay, thanks a lot for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.